Hello and welcome to the Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist and I'm the online editor at the Strad. This will come as no surprise to listeners that the city of Cremona is revered as being the historical birthplace and home of the violin and violin making, with luthiers today still emulating the models of Stradivari, Guarneri and the like. But what about the makers in nearby Brescia? Despite being geographically close, the city of Brescia has a remarkably different story, producing instruments and makers with their own distinct style. Here to shine a light on Brescian instrument making is Sydney-based luthier Linda Lispe, who puts into historical context what life was like for makers such as DiSalo, Magini and Ruggeri, and what influenced the choices they made when making their instruments. Here's Linda. Linda, welcome to the Strad podcast. You're a luthier based in Sydney, my old home, and you're also the host of the Violin Chronicles podcast. So nice to speak to a fellow podcaster today. We're going to talk a little bit about the city of Brescia versus Cremona and how this instrument making hub has a bit of history to it and why it's not quite as well known as the huge violin making hub that is Cremona today. Tell me a little bit about the history of Brescia. Why was it considered an instrument making hub to begin with? Well, thank you for having me on, Davina. And can I just start with when I was a violin making student in France and even working, there would be the sort of phrase, a Brescian instrument or this this is from the Brescian school. And I think I would just like nod my head like a lot of people did. But deep down, I was <laughs> asking myself the question, what exactly is a Brescian instrument? I knew it was a city in Italy, but apart from that, and that the most well-known makers are probably Magini, mm-hmm. De Salo, Rogeri, you hear those names. Uh, and apart from that, I didn't really know much more, but they really do have a fascinating story. Well, most people know Cremona, that's the home of Stradivari and Guarneri, but Brescia is actually 50 kilometres away. It was part of the Venetian state whereas Cremona was actually ruled by a part of the Spanish state. So there were two very different uh, cities, even though they were geographically quite close. And Brescia was uh, really a hub of musicians and also instrument makers in the 1500s and 1600s. We know this because there are some quite famous people, like, uh, for example, Isabella d'Este was a very well-known woman, and she would always order the best of everything. And when she wanted instruments, she had a consort of vials uh, ordered from Brescia. There was also troops of musicians that were well known because they were a part of this Venetian state and they loved festivals and processions and those music was a big part of their life. Yeah. So Brescia was, as well as being an instrument making hub, also a music making hub. And so I suppose it was quite busy, but as you mentioned, it came under different jurisdiction to Cremona. So because of that, there are differences that sort of stem in all the different crafts. How would you describe the difference between a Brescian and a Cremonese instrument? Quite simply to someone who is perhaps unfamiliar, how would you be able to spot the difference? Spot the difference. So you do have certain names, like we said, that are quite well-known. Magini, for example. The classic Magini 
copy that we see is a uh, double purfling. So the purfling, uh, the little, the black inlay that uh, sort of traces the outline of the instrument. So they'll, in yeah. most instruments, it's just one uh, sort of outline and the Magini one will have a double one and on the back will be quite an intricate design. And often mm-hmm. people go, oh, wow, look at this instrument. And that's the Magini instrument. And a lot of people yeah. will recognize the, the Brescian sort of school there. In making this purfling, the Brescians would always use ebony uh, in contrast with the Cremonese who would often use uh, tinted wood. So tinted wood was very easy to work with, quite elastic, it could move. And so it's interesting that the Brescians would use ebony, which is an expensive wood. It was very hard to work with. It's hard. <laughs> going to say horrible yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's brittle <laughs> it breaks it's this difficult wood to work with and then they just use it so much there's all these designs and in the instruments so it was a challenge that's interesting because I mean I think of ebony uh, from a playing perspective as being the fingerboard and the mm-hmm. fingerboard has to withstand people constantly pressing down with their fingers and then eventually you know you need to get it planed because it starts to wear away but it's generally kind of one block of wood isn't it so I mean I can't imagine how you managed to make purfling out of something which is as you mentioned so rigid and brittle would they make the purfling out of one piece or was it sort of fragments kind of pieced together if you look closely at your instrument it'll go black white black and the blacks are more often than not tinted wood and the white will sometimes be maple or a a fruit wood and yeah it is a very dense wood a very hard wood and that's why we use it for fingerboards. And so to work with that in very thin, you could imagine it, it's quite, it would be quite brittle and, and break. And you you see that in the instruments, in the purfling. The, it's a bit rougher than the Cremonese work. And you can see that sometimes it'll break in the purfling. So you see little angles. And also, well, the workmanship is often a bit rougher, a bit uh, faster. Uh, the, the making was perhaps less, um, less attention to detail compared to Cremonese instruments. Something that's that's harder to see is the inside, but the inside of Cremonese instruments that haven't been altered uh, would have uh, gouge marks, um, uh, rasp marks, and sometimes scorch marks, which is a bit of a mystery. There's a lot of different um, <laughs> theories about that one. Someone drop a cigarette inside and just... <laughs> Hoped that it didn't burn away. Actually, you remind me, you know, you mentioned Magini before and Magini also typically has the double scrolls as well. Is that right? Yeah, the scroll that would go for an extra turn. Not always, but the Maginis that, for example, uh, Viom copied had that extra scroll. And so that sort of gave the impression that all his instruments were like that. They weren't all like that, but you're correct. It kind of looks like a a dense cinnamon bun or something. Yeah, a cinnamon roll. (laughs) You know, you also mentioned other makers as well, like Dasalo and Ruggieri. And when I think of Dasalo, I think of his double basses, because quite famously, there are some double basses, you know, still around the bit that are being played by really prominent players. Tell me a little bit about these makers as well. In the old literature, people would say that Dasalu invented the violin or the, or the double bass or the viola. And then uh, quite recently we see in records that actually Andrea Amati was born before Gasparo Dasalu. But the Brescian instruments have this sort of archaic look to them. And so people had said, oh, look, these are really, really old instruments. But that wasn't exactly the case. They just had a different uh, way of making, a different design. And Dasalo, he was a maker. He was quite successful. 
Maxime Bibo in the Australian Chamber Orchestra, he plays on an amazing uh, double bass from uh, about 1580, and it's a huge instrument. De Salo was actually a bass player himself. Uh, so he was a musician. Often violin makers were musicians as well. Tragically, there was the plague in Brescia and he found himself with nieces and nephews and family members coming to live with him. So he had this busy workshop and he had, he'd had seven children himself. He has uh, a sister that comes to live with him who's 12. Uh, so he had this really quite hectic life and as he's getting older, he has a son who uh, is a violin maker as well. And he sort of disappears into history because he takes on an apprentice who's very gifted, who's called Magini. And Magini himself, he ha- he's quite successful. He marries, he has, he has 10 children, he has his workshop, he has other properties, he has several properties. And you have to imagine that Brescia is this really vibrant city, it's very musical. People would pay artists to paint the facades of their houses. So it was colourful, it was full of life. And a f- that um, 20 years before de Salo was born, it was violently sacked by the French. They basically came in and for three days they just killed everyone. It was pretty dramatic. And so this story of Brescian violin making is, uh, is also a story of, of their recovery from this trauma of war and they have the city embarked on all these incredible building projects and they were just trying to um, recover really from the effects of war and the music and the instruments are part of that story. Like rising from the ashes again. Yes. I didn't actually know that about Brescia. We mentioned a little bit before about you were at violin making school in France and you'd hear about Brescian instruments and be like, oh, okay. But then obviously a lot of people have heard about Cremonese instruments. So why do you think Cremona gets all the fame and glory? Do you think it's necessarily fair? Well, you're competing with Stradivari and Guarneri. The Brescians, they're less of the instruments. They're older. The violas, uh, when the Brescians, when it was their heyday, it was really the, the time of the viola as well. A lot of music was being written for violas. And it was only a little bit later in the time of Niccolo Amati that the violin really takes off. So that's kind of after De Salo, but during Magini's time. And De Salo makes very few violins. And we think they're probably the uh, collaboration with Magini. And then Magini does make more violins, but you have Cremona's really the, the centre of violins. That's really what they excelled at, the soprano instrument, whereas the Brescians, perhaps it's more violas and basses that it, they're known for. And they do sound amazing. Yeah. And there are fewer of them, so obviously they're not going to be as prolific around the world, whereas there are, what, over... 600 Stradivari violins yeah, still even, around. Yeah, and... even more, yeah. He made a lot of them. So there is something to be said for sheer quantity and being known. Mm-hmm. And there were even makers before De Salo, but we know so little of them that there's very few instruments attributed to them. So maybe there are instruments by the... There's the Michele family, um, but there are so few it's, it's really hard to say. Yeah, and I suppose going earlier and earlier, you're delving into instruments that are predating the violin, even predating the viola, the viol family, instruments that are sort of proto-violins yeah, that we don't necessarily play anymore. And then in Cremona, it was kind of the viola, the violin sort of comes from the viola. Uh, it started with the viola in Brescia. And then, but then you have almost at the same time, Andrea Guarneri in Cremona, he 
he makes what today the model that we see as a, a violin and it was yeah amazing and so the violin today is really a uh, a work of uh, Renaissance thinking and drawing from that period. Luthiers today are still using those models, aren't they? Like, yes. I mean, when I went to Cremona just a month ago and you see so many new models out there and everyone's saying, well, this is a Stradivari model, this is a Guarneri model, and people are still copying these. If you were to make a new instrument, do you tend to see any Luthiers that model after Brescian instruments rather than Cremonese instruments? Uh, yes, and there are actually contemporary makers in Brescia today making Brescian models like uh, Filippo Fassa, for example. I made recently a Magini model viola for a client who that's exactly what he wanted. So I made that and it was really good. I mean, the experience of making it uh, was really was really good. At first, I was like, I'm going to make it like the Brescians. And then I, I realized that, um, no, I think I'll just make it in the Cremonese style. It was a bit... <laughs> <laughs> so did it have the double purfling that you mentioned before and did you work with the really brittle ebony? So I didn't work with the brittle ebony and I didn't have the two millimetre thick ribs which are almost twice as thick and almost impossible to bend. I would have, maybe it's more the the Ruggeri style. So Ruggeri, was, he's the third sort of Brescian maker. He was trained in Cremona, moved to Brescia and made Brescian instruments, if you will, but in the Cremonese method. Right, so he's kind of the guy that sort of brought it together. He was the the linchpin that kind of yeah. He's a hybrid. Yeah, the the hybrid uh, Brescian Cremonese model. Well, I suppose at the end of the day, you have to do what makes things easier for you, right? And if working with ribs that are two millimeters too thick, and if that's going to make life difficult for you as a luthier, then you've got to opt for a method that actually works right that's another characteristic of the earlier brushing instruments is they would have very thick ribs but they wouldn't use uh we put in little reinforcing strips which is the sort of the cremonese method called side linings and we have things called corner blocks that we fix the ribs onto and these Brescian instruments didn't have side linings or corner blocks but they had like impressively thick ribs to hold up the instrument so today uh, it's not extremely practical. People question if there was a sound post or a bass bar in some of these instruments. That's They wouldn't have sounded like they do today. Yeah, I was going to say, if you don't have a bass bar or a sound post, how would an instrument even make any sound at all? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, so <laughs> there was a moment where the violin became more popular and there's this thought that, well, that's when the sound post and the bass bar were starting to be used because that would all of a sudden make the instrument a lot more uh, capable of projection and a lot more powerful. So you do have right. our, our very first reference to a sound post is actually in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And he wrote that in the 1590s. And there's a scene in Romeo and Juliet uh, that's often cut from the productions and it's it's after Juliet is supposedly dead and there's this conversation between three musicians really just trying to get paid for a gig which Paris has cancelled because, you know, his fiance is dead. So you have uh, James Soundpost, uh, Hugh Rebeck, and Simon Catling. And Catling was like um, an old name for uh, gut strings. So yeah, James yeah. Soundpost. So the Soundpost was, was happening then. I don't recall that scene. I guess all the productions I've seen must have cut it out or I just missed completely missed it it's almost always uh scrapped that scene but it's it's incredible it's it's full of puns and dad jokes and there are these it's yeah it's very funny 
I love that. And it, it also just like how things haven't changed. You're always going to get like a group of musicians being like, oh man, we just want to get paid. Like, why did the gig get cancelled? They're still struggling <laughs> to get paid. Yeah. The same struggles today. It's like, oh, didn't we have a contingency clause? Oh, I know she died, but you know. <laughs> I mean, they, they've been called there. They were going to get, and then, and then they're all there and they're like, oh, actually, no. And they're like, well, well, are we still going to get Paid. I could have taken on another gig. Oh. We could play a funeral match. <laughs> yeah, totally. We're available. Linda, thanks for, you know, sharing your thoughts on brash and instruments with me. I'll admit I really don't know much about the topic at all. I'm one of those people that, of course, I've heard about Cremonese instrument to almost no end because they're so heavily emulated and talked about so much. But it's been really interesting to hear a little bit about maybe the unfair underdogs of the luthier world, of the Italian instrument making history, yeah. um, and learn a little bit more about, you know, Ruggeri, Magini and uh, De Salo. So, you know, thank you so much. And I also direct listeners to Linda's podcast, The Violin Chronicles. So if you want to hear more about the stories of luthiers and violin making history then go check that podcast out thank you the violin chronicles i'm talking about the lives of the makers so it's really anyone who's interested in violins would be able to follow it you don't have to be an initiated violin maker to to get it that was linda lispe check out the show notes for a link to her podcast the violin chronicles to hear more about the lives and history of violin makers and don't forget to check out the strad.com where you'll find the latest news articles and reviews on all things to do with string playing if you like what you see and hear register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward we've got 50 percent off an online subscription for students and if you're not sure you're ready to subscribe take out a free trial for seven days start reading right away with no strings attached and if you happen to be on apple podcasts right now Give us a little review or a rating. It will help people discover this podcast. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon for another episode. Take good care. Bye.